Welcome back to the Guidehouse Insights Transportation Podcast. I am Sam Abul Samad, Principal Analyst here on the uh, Transportation Team at Guidehouse. Um, and uh, it's been a little while uh, since we posted anything. Uh, we've had some changes in our team. We've got some new members of the team. Uh, and uh, like to uh, introduce them first. Uh, we'll start off with uh, Oliver Dixon. Uh, Oliver, uh, give us a quick intro to, uh, to you, to yourself, and uh, what you're working on here on the team. Hi, hello everybody. Nice to meet you. Um, yeah, I'm Oliver Dixon. I'm, I guess I now have to call myself a veteran of the truck industry, which uh, always makes me slightly nervous. But <laughs> I, I come, I come from the heavy commercial vehicle, heavy capital goods back uh, space. Right now, I'm trying to tread my way through what is the increasingly thorny issue of fuel cell. Uh, fuel cell electric vehicles in the heavy truck space. Um, it's certainly, I have to say, I, I'm, we are in a time where this is a really great time to be involved in transportation and mobility. It's energizing, it's exciting, and there is an awful lot of change afoot. And so I'm being kept pretty busy right now. Thanks. And uh, Mike Austin. Hello. Uh, yeah, glad to be joining the team. I am working primarily on EVs and then also some of the other advanced mobility. I come from a background in automotive journalism where I was uh, frequently the technical expert, just you know, using the, the technical background I have and applying it to new cars. Um, and then in the last few years, I've been more into classic cars from a, a career standpoint, but I've always kept an interest in the transforming landscape. So I'm just really excited to be here and, and dive back into, you know, what's coming next, and not just with EVs, but also how, you know, again, people are reconsidering how we approach transportation and cars and all forms of mobility. And uh, thanks, Mike. And we've also got uh, Elizabeth Wilson joining us for the first time. Edie? Hi, um, I'm Elizabeth, or Edie, and I'm a research analyst focusing on fleet decarbonization in transportation and mobility. Uh, I was previously working in Beijing, um, along with Thailand and New York, so around the world. Um, and I focus on, or right now I'm working on SAF, um, EV charging, and marine electrification-related projects, so kind of across the board. Thanks, Edie. Um, and uh, we've also got our returning uh, team members, uh, Saji Evbanada, based in the UK, and uh, Scott Shepard. Uh, morning, everybody. Um, let's start off with uh, with Mike today. Uh, what have you got uh, to talk about today? Uh, yeah, so earlier this week, I went to the Battery Show. Uh, it's in suburban Detroit, and it's just a huge battery industry trade show. It was um, it was quite remarkable, actually, because it was it was just hugely packed. It was like trouble getting in and out of the show. The parking lot was full. The show floor was was jam packed, and it had. You know, every single level of battery manufacturing and supply chain from, you know, adhesive tapes to, you know, full battery packs. And there were a number of seminars. And the, the main thing that, uh, that I learned in these talks was uh, speaking about raw materials. So, you know, a big question, especially uh, to skeptics, is people say, well, we don't have enough raw materials to make these EVs. We're never going to get to full electrification. And nobody is is assuming that we're going to get to 100% electrification even by, say, 2030. But from a material standpoint, uh, the surprising thing to me was no one's really worried about lithium. The two main minerals that, uh, that come up are lithium and nickel. And uh, lithium, there is a shortage. So in the news today, actually, lithium hit an all-time an all-time high as demand is surging, and um, one of the Chinese automakers, or maybe it was the Chinese um, Vehicle Association that forecast it, like predicted that they raised their projection upward for next year again. So lithium is in a bit of a crunch right now, but there's anticipation that as the um, more lines come on, there's going to be, you know, that's going to slacken a little bit, and then again as EV um, production ramps back up, we might have like another spike, but long-term lithium will be fine. And one of the interesting reasons why was as we're moving to more silicone in batteries, replacing graphite, we're increasing the density of the battery, which decreases the need for lithium. Um, the other piece was nickel, which is 
it it sounds like it's going to be more of a shortage and is, is going to be a little tighter. And that was also fascinating just on a bunch of levels because getting a nickel mine, you know, there's nickel in places like Canada and in, in northern uh, the northern U.S. It's an incredibly long process to get those things permitted and up and running, which is relevant to the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of provisions for uh, where the minerals source from to get clean vehicle credits. Um, and the other interesting thing about nickel was it's primarily used in um, in stainless steel. And that's, first of all, once it's in stainless steel, you can't get it out. But second of all, as all of this nickel demand ramps up for battery production, it's going to put pressure on stainless steel, which means construction prices will probably go up. So um, all, all, all sorts of really interesting things about the minerals. But the, the main takeaway was, um, you know, you're seeing lithium in the news right now. The price is really high. But long term, inside the industry, it seems that nobody's really worried about lithium prices. Yeah, lithium is actually a lot more common around the planet, you know, pretty much everywhere on the planet um, than most people realize. It's just, it hasn't, there there hasn't, until relatively recently, there hasn't been the demand for it. So we haven't developed mines or, you know, extraction for lithium in most regions. So most of it that we get today for batteries is coming from South America and Australia and being processed largely in China. But uh, I'm interested on on the nickel side. you know, over the last couple of years, we've been hearing a lot about a lot of alternative chemistries. Most of the most of the EV batteries today are using some nickel-rich chemistry, like nickel manganese cobalt or nickel cobalt aluminum. Um, was there much discussion about some of the other um, non-nickel-based chemistries uh, that that are being developed? Um, not a ton. It was it was mostly focused on. Um you know, anode and cathode materials and, and a lot of it, um, not a lot, but one of the presentations was stating that a lot of these companies are saying their chemistries are, are agnostic to whatever the anode or cathode is that they can work with whatever ends up being the the dominant, um, or the, or the useful chemistry. And we'll probably see several of them. So I, if I remember correctly, I think for the most part, they were saying that, um, about a third of the mix would be NMC and, um, or no, wait, sorry. A third, a third is going to be LFPs, lithium, um, iron, uh, manganese, and then two thirds would be yeah, phosphate. Sorry, and then um, the other two thirds would be the nickel cobalt one. So um, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of talk on like what are the next chemistries coming along. A, a lot of again, a lot of it focused on on moving to uh, silicon anodes. Was there any talk about how the Department of Energy Loan Programs Office has been trying to shore up the battery supply chain? I know that they invested in a graphite processing plant um, or provided a loan for that in Louisiana. Um, I didn't no, The talks I attended, I didn't. Um, there weren't any on that subject. I think there might have been at the conference, but uh, no. What about um, any discussion around, uh, you know, now that we've got the IRA enacted and you've got these um, content requirements for those critical minerals in order to qualify for the, the clean vehicle credits, um, is there, was there any discussion about pushing for expedited approval of new mining permits or, or, or new, you know, new, new extraction permits for any of these materials so that it can be localized? Um, yeah, there was a little bit of that, and that's where, um, you know, that's when I when I touched on the nickel piece. It was uh, there was a representative from a mining company on a panel, and I think he said, you know, one of their one of their mines has been, you know, something like five years in process and like a hundred million dollars, and they haven't even started digging. And the other one, <laughs> the other one has been longer and more expensive. And and yes, they have. They they didn't get into specifics, but it was. Uh, you know, basically this consensus of um, you have the Department of Energy, which is which understands the need to expedite this. And then you have the EPA, which isn't and, and other, you know, uh, or even Bureau of Land Management. You have other divisions of the of the government that aren't necessarily trying to hold things up, but also have their own process. And, um, you know, there wasn't anything specific on, you know, this is going to come down and happen. But it was it was recognized that with this bill, 
things need to move quicker and there's there's pressure on that and it probably will get some expedited permits okay mm-hmm. all right thanks mike oliver you're up <clears throat> thanks sam um really two two linked pieces of news this week um around electric trucks um as something of an amuse-bouche, as an appetizer, Volvo announced a couple of days ago uh, that it was actually going to start series production up to 44 tons, so up to Class 8 in the United States. And it's series production at both of its European plants uh, in Gothenburg and Ghent in Belgium. That in of itself is kind of interesting because uh, it's not so much a toe in the water as a foot firmly in the water for Volvo. Um, This is taking capacity from its ICE lines and moving it towards electric trucks. So that as a vote of confidence in battery electric trucks on the part of Volvo, which is a reckonable truck manufacturer, is significant. But it kind of became overshadowed yesterday by Iveco. Uh, I should put this into some context. Uh, next week is the biannual ga- gathering of the clans in Hanover for truck manufacturers. It's the, the big agenda-setting truck show, uh, which happens every two years. So we're going to get a lot of news like this over the next month anyway. But it's interesting that these are the teasers. Anyway, Iveco announced uh, a new entity called GATE, which is Green and Advanced Transport Ecosystem. What this is suggesting, and as I say, details at the moment are a little bit sparse, but this effectively offers a pay-per-use route to heavy electric trucks. Now, it's difficult to understate the significance of this. Sorry to overstate the significance of this. Um, Moving the adoption of electric trucks from CapEx to OpEx is, I think, removing a huge barrier to adoption. Um, If what Iveco is suggesting actually comes to fruition, then we will go to a true pay-per-use, pay-per-mile model which removes an awful lot of the calculation and worries uh, amongst, you know, the, not necessarily the early adopters of electric trucks, but if you like, the sort of the the second group uh, who are, you know, notoriously conservative in their technology choices. This will will create a very significant opportunity for adoption. So it's early days yet. Uh, I'm expecting... I'm expecting to learn an awful lot more about this over the next few days. And I think key to all of this is if another OEM uh, announces a similar deal as the Aveco deal, then we actually have a situation where, if you like, the the pay-per-use CapEx to OpEx model is legitimized. Uh, If you get two, two two OEMs offering it, then it's pretty much game over. Long term, I think this has to make our consideration of fuel cell trucks. I think we have to revisit a number of assumptions on this. Um, If the heavy truck market is going to coalesce around battery electric vehicles, then, you know, trucks are bought on the basis of three, um, three decision points, regulatory compliance, utility, total cost of ownership. Regulatory compliance is ticked on both sides by FCEV and BEV. Utility, uh, this gives, uh, the, the utility side of things, this model gives battery electric trucks a very significant utility advantage. And again, with TCO, uh, moving it to OPEX is very significant indeed. So this... Uh, I. Uh, is this a major inflection point for heavy commercial vehicles? The more I think about it, the more I think it probably is. Uh, I think, you know, we'll look back on this time and think, ah, yeah, that could have been the moment. So interesting times. So a uh, couple of questions for you on that. Um, first off, 
with moving to a, a pay-per-use model, would that mean that uh, Iveco or other um, o- truck OEMs they would continue to own the fleet and or own own the yeah own the fleet of trucks and then essentially offer them to fleet operators as uh, on a on a subscription basis? Yeah, uh, I mean it's a and again you know caveat here is. Uh, that this is a press release ahead of a trade show, so we all know what you know the, these are about. But yeah, I mean, if we take this at face value, um, I suspect what it means is you know Evaco will operate will offer a true turnkey solution. Basically, all the truck operator needs to do is to provide the body behind the steering wheel. Um, that you know that that is you know Evaco is is going to carry an awful lot of risk uh, on the basis of that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, one of the big arguments within transportation, within freight transport over the past decade or so has been the notion of core competency. Trucking fleets live or die by utilization. I, if they run with a full trailer 95% of the time, they're making money. If it's 85% of the time, they're probably going bankrupt. So. This allows the trucking fleets to actually focus on, you know, their core competency, utilization, the, the ownership of the vehicle, the management of the vehicle, the management of the trading cycle. That all goes away. Um, so it's a sort of, you know, it, it creates a situation where it's not quite an asset, asset light model, but it's a sort of a medium weight asset model, if you like. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it literally is a sort of a, you know, a very basic transaction, 100 miles a day equals, you know, cents per mile, end of the month, here's the check. The the other thing you you mentioned uh, was around more of a shift towards uh, battery electric from uh, from fuel cell uh, that's been looked at a lot for trucks recently. and I guess I'm, I'm I'm not sure necessarily how this particular change has that impact. Can you dive into that a little more? Because you know, fuel cells, yeah. you know, especially for long haul trucking, you know, I think for for short haul regional trucking, yeah, it definitely makes sense to go battery. But for long haul, you know, does this really impact that? I, I, Sam, that's a very you know, it's a very reasonable question, and it's one that, as I say, I've been wandering around this morning muttering to myself about. Uh, it's the truth of the matter is that, again, what does a truck buyer want? What does a truck operator want? He wants utility. Now, he doesn't care if it's a blue truck or a red truck. He just wants the thing, or she wants the thing, to move to to haul freight. So the means by which that freight is actually moved and the means by which that movement is propelled are really, you know, they're, they're a nicety. But at the end of the day, you know, they're very much a secondary consideration. If there is a charging infrastructure, if the payload is acceptable, and, you know, basically, if you look at this from an hours of service perspective, a truck driver in Europe can drive for four and a half hours before he has to take a 45-minute break. So you need the ability to move... You know, a reasonable payload, and you need the ability to move that payload for four and a half hours before you know everything needs to stop and be recharged. If we can actually get to that point, then the incremental value of the fuel cell truck, which I have to admit is you know superficially a far more attractive proposition for long haul. You know that 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 advantage begins to dissipate very quickly indeed, and you know at the end of the day, truck operators are they're not after they're not they're pretty technology averse at the end of the day, so they want you know they want that which allows them to be in regulatory compliance and to you know basically to hold freight. That's what they want. You know, blue truck, red truck, it doesn't matter as long as it's a truck. 
Okay. Interesting, interesting uh, perspective on that. Uh, I guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. And, and, you know, perhaps, you know, even a, a, another potential model to throw into that mix to think about is, you know, if, if an OEM is actually owning that, fl- owning the, the tractors, at least, uh, if not the trailers, uh, you know, there's, there's the potential maybe for some sort of uh, relay model where, you know, after, <clears throat> excuse me, after a few hours of driving, uh, you know, the, the driver pulls in uh, to uh, uh, somewhere, a truck stop or somewhere, um, and actually switches tractors, uh, hooks up the trailer to a different tractor. That tractor goes off, gets charged, and then they continue on after their break with a, a fresh tractor that's that's fully charged uh, until their until their next break. Um, you know, is that something that could potentially happen? It's yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> there are an awful lot of secular issues within transport at the moment, which are slightly away from the truck. I mean, for example, there's a very significant driver shortage, uh, both in North America and in Europe. Drivers do not want to be out all week anymore. They don't want to be sleeping in a tin box. So I think the relay system is going to be based more on a a drop and swap deal with trailers but the truck actually getting back to base each night and the driver sleeping in his own bed. Um, that being said, I think, you know, this, uh, and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but this, this really could redraw the value chain uh, within the commercial vehicle industry. Uh, I don't see, I don't really see what, I'm very glad I'm not a truck dealer at the moment because I don't see how those guys are going to be making any money in the future. Um, And, you know, it it is actually one step away from what a discussion that's been ongoing really ever since I've been in this business. You know, at what point does the truck manufacturer actually provide a staffed truck, a fully manned truck? Um, the driver shortage is very significant. You know, is this an enabler for, you know, a, a truck OEM to actually provide a complete transport solution? I don't know. I, I think we're probably getting a little bit ahead of ourselves on that one. But, you know, the the significance of this, the impact of this is going to be felt, you know, throughout the industry, throughout the value chain. All right. Fascinating. Lot, lots to think about and still a lot of, a lot of uncertainty uh, as we make the, the transition towards fleet decarbonization. And not that I'm looking for any sympathy here at all, Sam, but and also a lot of rewriting of a fuel cell electric vehicle <laughs> yeah. from last week. So anyway, but there you go. So. All right. Thanks, Oliver. Uh, Saji, what do you have? Hello. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought I'd uh, um, share an announcement from the um, electric two-wheeler world. So, um, so Honda, they, uh, they this week announced, so they, they plan to introduce um, at least 10 or more electric uh, motorcycles by 2025. Um, I guess, firstly, when um, Honda says electric motorcycles, um, they have their own kind of uh, segmentation. So they... they that includes things such as e-bikes, which they, they classify as vehicles which uh, travel up to 16 miles an hour, um, e-mopeds or e-seated uh, scooters um, are capable of travelling up to 30 miles an hour. And, and beyond that, um, are probably what are classed as conventional motorcycles, um, um, but I think Honda have their own platform, which is called something like Fun EV, uh, which covers that uh, category. So at this stage, it's not really clear details on specific models um, uh, as such, um, but this is part of their their larger strategy to become uh, carbon neutral, uh, at least their motorcycle uh, business, um, by, by 2040. Um, they have some sales targets of trying to hit around a million units uh, in the next five years. Um, and... Uh, um, about 3.5 million units uh, by 2030. So, um, you know, a couple, a couple of the bikes they, they plan to launch are, are probably classified as CTD scooters. Um, they call them business bikes, um, which are um, essentially, um, yeah, 
low speed um, electric mopeds. Um, so they're planning to, to launch a couple of those in uh, Asia, uh, Japan, of course, uh, and Europe, uh, probably around 2024 20, 20, to 2025. Um, they plan to launch a couple of uh, personally personal vehicles. Um, so um, once again, those are going to be in Asia, Europe, and uh, Japan. Um, and from their, their fun category, the, the higher powered uh, and higher speed vehicles, um, they're, lo- they're looking to launch about three vehicles there um, in Japan, uh, Europe, and also in the US in this, in this case. Uh, finally, they also have um, a, a, a kid's e-bike as well, which they're, they're, they've been working on. Um, so interestingly, um, in terms of batteries, uh, it seems that these these new models are likely to use um, uh, Honda's uh, mobile power pack, which um, uh, enables battery swapping. Um, furthermore, they've also it's also been uh, announced that um, they do plan to use uh, all solid state batteries, um, probably towards the end of the end of the decade, I, I, I believe. Oh, sorry, end of uh, the. the, the their, their planning period, probably around 2024 to 2025 period. Um, so um, I, I guess related to that, um, Honda have been using these these power packs and uh, and in um, um, battery sharing applications. So um, in um, uh, in India, for example, they've been working on battery swapping for uh, electric three wheelers, um, i.e. rickshaw rickshaws. Um, as well as in other uh, Asian markets such as Thailand uh, and and Vietnam, um, I, I guess also related to that, um, you know, Honda, you know, being the, the biggest uh, motorcycle company OEM, um, they've partnered with the other big OEMs, um, including Kawasaki, uh, Yamaha, and Suzuki, um, to try to form a, a battery swapping company called uh, Gachaso, if that's correct, pronounced correctly. So that was announced a couple of months ago, and um, they plan to start rolling out their battery swapping network in Japan, um, initially in Tokyo, uh, later this later this year. Um, so it, it's uh, it, it's kind of showing um, Honda's ambition, firstly, in terms of electrifying their their electric two wheeler fleet. Um, I think it, it seems quite an ambitious target, uh, launching ten or more uh, new models in the next few years. Um, and uh, of course, it's interesting um, to, to, to see um, that there seems to be very limited um, um, plans for launching these vehicles in the US or North America at, at this stage. Um, and um, uh, I guess, addition to that, globally, um, it would be interesting to see what they do, what they want to do in India, given the the recent policy change to try and encourage battery swapping there. Um, so perhaps they'll try to also increase their presence uh, in that market too. So um, with their with Honda's battery swap system, are they using a standardized battery form factor across the range of different vehicles so that whether you're using a, a, a moped or a bike or you know a, a larger motorcycle, um, you could utilize the same batteries you know, and I guess is the, is the intent, you know, that the battery would basically be just removable by the owner to, you know, take it in their home and charge it, um, or to do something like what Gogoro does, where you have a battery as a service module, a model. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's that's it's, it's probably most likely the the, the latter, um, and and helping to try and bring down the uh, the initial upfront uh, purchase costs for for consumers. Um, I think that. Um, uh, with regards to the compatibility of, of the battery, um, I believe it's the same battery units they want to use in all of these uh, different uh, uh, motor- motorcycle segments. Um, I'm not too sure about the um, the, the higher-powered uh, vehicles, though, the higher-powered uh, fun category vehicles. So um, they, it may be some kind of modular system using more than one of them, but it's not really clear at this stage um, what they want to do. But... Um, they're already using these power packs um, in um, the uh, electric rickshaws in India, so um, it, it's likely they'll be continuing to to use those. Okay, and with the the partnership with the other motorcycle OEMs, um, you know, did uh, I guess is the intent there that the batteries would be uh, interoperable across the vehicles from from different manufacturers? Yes, that's right. So um, 
Yeah, so so the, the, the partnership is actually formed a, a new entity, a new company that should should be having uh, uh, comp- cross compatible batteries uh, for the different um, OEMs. Um, and uh, as I said, I think they, they haven't rolled it out yet, but it should be you know, later this year. Um, you know, starting in Tokyo and expanding throughout Japan. And I, I think they do have plans to try and roll it out uh, uh, further afield as well. All right. Anybody else have any other questions for Saji? Yeah. So I've been, I was, I was a little sad to hear that uh, it sounds like the plans for the U S are not that ambitious because I, I have a Honda metropolitan moped and I've been uh, to me, an electric moped makes a ton of sense if you have one and use one, but have they given any um, hints as to the form factor or the size? So I'm thinking to the uh, years ago, they showed the e-cub. Uh, which made a bunch of sense because the Cub is sort of like the iconic model. I think it's the best-selling motorcycle of all time. But so, are, are they? The question is: Are they going to finally bring out an electric Cub, or is it going to be something else? Or they're not saying. They're not saying. I mean, um, there, there were some images rele- re- released for their um, like their, their business bike segments. Um, so um, those just appear to be. Uh, of a typical moped form factor in terms of its uh, t- terms of its size, um, and um, I think that's intended to be used by you know, c- commercial fleets like postal companies and so on. Um, but perhaps um, the, um, the the fun segment um, where the vehicles are likely to be a bit bigger. Um, it's although it's not they haven't really, uh, given any um, details on what those those are going to look like or or any specifications on those. So it's a bit unclear at, at, at this stage. Uh, uh, I will jump into uh, into my topic then. Uh, earlier this week, I um, visited uh, San Francisco for a couple of days um, because Cruise was holding an open house um, at their headquarters. Uh, and... Um, Kyle Vogt, who's uh, the co-founder and CEO of Cruise, uh, spoke along with uh, GM CEO Mary Barra at a uh, Goldman Sachs uh, technology conference in San Francisco on Monday of this week. Uh, And then um, as part of that presentation, um, Kyle announced that uh, within the next 90 days, Cruise intends to launch driverless robo-taxi operations in both Phoenix and Austin, Texas. They launched a similar service uh, in June of this year in San Francisco. Uh, their cruise is based in San Francisco, and they've been testing there and uh, doing development there ever since the, the company uh, was founded in 2013. Um, so this is uh, uh, you know, uh, big news, um, that, uh, because particularly for Austin, uh, to launch a service within the next 90 days, because un- unlike most uh, of the companies in the automated driving space, typically they are testing in a in a city for usually several years before they launch any kind of commercial service. Um, Cruise up to this point has not done any physical testing in Austin. They have not had any vehicles there. Um, they've not they've not even mapped the city, um, and they plan to have their vehicles, a fleet of their vehicles, up and running, offering. Um, ride hailing, driverless ride hailing services to uh, the public by the end of this year, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, it, you know, it took them uh, what uh, eight years, nine years uh, almost uh, to go from starting in San Francisco to being able to do that in San Francisco. And I, I remember from a conversation I had with Kyle uh, a couple of years ago. You know, one of the things that he emphasized, you know, when I asked him about expanding into other cities because most, you know, a lot of the other big companies like Waymo, Motional, Argo, um, uh, Zooks and, and Baidu and others do their testing in multiple cities because you've got different environments, different operating environments, different rules of the road, road configurations, driving patterns. And what Kyle told me was, you know, they were putting a lot of emphasis on simulation, uh, Use, running the vehicles on the road in San Francisco, which is a tends to be a very complex environment to operate an AV, um, and gathering information, and then simulating other cities, and you know based on <clears throat> data they've gathered from other cities, doing the simulation, um, so that they can minimize the amount of testing they have to do 
on site in that city before they can launch commercial operations that start to generate revenue. So this is going to be a fascinating test for Cruise uh, as to how well that strategy can actually work. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, it, it's it, we'll definitely be watching that one very closely, um, and uh, um, along with uh, you know when I, while I was in San Francisco, I got to uh, we got uh, a group of us got a tour of Cruise's headquarters there, and I I last visited their headquarters in 2019. And at that time, um, Cruz had a little over a thousand, I mean, I think about 1200 people working there. They now have over 3000 employees. And, um, since I last visited their, their headquarters, they have moved all of their software teams out of the building into another building nearby. And they're doing a lot more. Um, they've, they've added new labs, hardware labs, uh, where they are building and testing a lot of hardware that they are now designing in-house. When they when they started off, like most AV companies, they started off using off-the-shelf components from various companies, from including their compute platforms, their sensors, uh, and then integrating all of that together into a system and developing the software to control it. <clears throat> um, what they're now doing is they as as they've gotten closer and closer to commercializing the technology is they've started working on actually replacing those off the shelf components with in-house designed systems um, that are more highly optimized for the task and that they feel can significantly reduce the costs. Uh, And one example of that is the the compute platform. Today they use uh, a compute platform that consists of a combination of Intel CPUs and NVIDIA GPUs um, doing all of the processing for of the sig- sensor signals, the perception, the path planning and control. They are they've been designing their own silicon, custom silicon to do that. Uh, they've and there, there's two chips that they've got. One is a signal processing chip and then the other one, the main processor is doing all of the perception and path planning and control. They've already received samples of their Dune chip, which is the signal processor, and they're getting the Horda chip, which is their their main processor, uh, first samples by uh, Thanksgiving. And um, they've, they've said that with this, they expect to be able to reduce the cost of their compute platform by almost 90% <clears throat> with this much more highly optimized system and also reduce the power consumption of the system by about 60%. And it's also a much smaller package um, with a lot, a uh, lot less um, uh, power requirements, a lot less thermal management requirements. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating to watch. They're not planning to roll that out into their production systems and their commercial systems until 2025. Um, but uh, right now the, the, the computer that runs the Chevrolet, the modified Chevrolet bolts they use consumes about four kilowatts of power. Their in-house design system um, consume is expected to consume about one and a half kilowatts. Uh, and that's a major difference when you're talking about uh, an electric vehicle that has to, that's operating and has to be driving around a city all day long and carrying passengers and, and cargo. Um, after our tour of the building, uh, we also got to take uh, rides in their robo-taxis. Um, and I had my first ride in an automated vehicle in January 2008 at CES in the the Chevy Tahoe from Carnegie Mellon University that won the DARPA Challenge. And that was just driving around a, a pre-programmed course uh, in a parking lot outside of the Las Vegas Convention Center. And I've ridden in many AVs over the almost 15 years since then from a lot of different companies. And this was the first time that I got into one with no safety driver, no minder to <laughs> from the company to come along and make sure everything was okay. No preset course. Uh, they just handed me a loaner iPhone with uh, the cruise app on there, the ride hailing app that the public can use today um, and said, here you go. Pick any destination you want in the service area. It's just like using Uber or Lyft. You put in the, the address of where you want to go and uh, it'll take you there. And so for the next 40 minutes or so. I just rode around the Richmond and um, uh, Pacific Heights area of, of San Francisco, um, completely uneventful. 
which was really amazing. Um, you know, the, the, the vehicle handled all of the, you know, it's not the, you know, it was, this was about nine, nine, nine in the evening uh, in an area of San Francisco that's not the most heavily trafficked. But still, you know, there was other traffic. There were pedestrians, there were cyclists, and the car did everything exactly as you would expect it to do. It, it stopped for pedestrians. It detected pedestrians. Uh, it, you know, came up to a four-way stop. Uh, so it was all clear, started to move. And then suddenly a pedestrian decided to cross the street in front of it. And so it stopped and waited, uh, same thing when making left turns, um, there was a double parked vehicle, uh, it slowed down, pulled up, pulled over slightly so it could see around it, saw that it was all clear and moved along, uh, past it. Uh, it, everything just worked exactly as it should be, which is exactly what you want from an autonomous vehicle. Uh, so there's some pretty impressive progress being made. Um, and also earlier that day before going to cruise, I also paid a visit to Zooks uh, and their uh, new factory uh, in Fremont, um, where they are building uh, prototypes of their purpose-built robo-taxi uh, and uh, saw how they're, how they're manufacturing that, mostly assembling subsystems that they're getting from a variety of suppliers. Uh, and then we went for a ride in that one as well. And that one was not out on public roads yet. Um, they've done all their safety testing, uh, but they're still waiting on the permits uh, from regulators in California to allow them to test it on the road. Uh, but we rode around the parking lot, around the building, um, and again, very uneventful. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, I think, a really promising future for automated uh, passenger carrying and, and delivery vehicles. That's really interesting, um, Sam. I was wondering what your thoughts were for, I guess, maybe a few years, maybe more than a few years from now when these commercial services have evolved a little more. Um, how do you think they're going to charge these vehicles? What, like, what's going to make sense in, in that, that use case that we're starting to see pop up? Yeah, so th this is you know um, mo most of the um, vehicles that are being utilized by AV companies are either plug-in hybrid or battery electric uh, vehicles. You know because they're they're looking you know part of what they're trying to achieve you know is reduced emissions um, and lower operating costs as well. Um, and today, uh, those vehicles when they need to be charged, you know they'll go into a depot. Uh, and a human will plug them in. But one of the things that Cruz uh, showed us uh, during our tour of their, their hardware labs is work that they're doing on a variety of automation uh, for back-end services. Uh, you know, so not just driving around the city, but they, they showed us a, uh, a robotic system for charging the vehicle. Um, that uh, It's funny, you know, the, the vehicles they have today are based on the Chevy Bolt, um, they also have a purpose-built vehicle that they've designed with Honda and Ford and General Motors uh, called the Origin. That they're they've been testing it on the track uh, in California and here in Michigan, and they're again waiting for um, a waiver approval from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to operate them on the road. Um, that uh, you know, both of those vehicles have uh, like any other. Uh, EV on the road uh, today have a, a little port door over the charge port, similar to the door you have over the, your fuel filler on, on gas cars. And so this robotic system that uh, Cruz developed uh, basically has a couple of little fingers on it that you know can pop open the charge port door. And it, it's just it, unlike you know a few years back, um, Tesla released a video showing a silvery snake-like mechanism that would go in and plug in and, and automatically charge a, a Tesla vehicle. This was not, you know, anything so fancy like that. It, it looked like a pretty standard industrial robot, um, you know, that didn't, doesn't look especially high tech, but is very functional. Uh, so, and because it's a, it's an automated vehicle, it can pull into exactly the right position. So the robot robotic arm comes over, pops the door open, sticks the plug in, charges it when it's done, it pulls out and goes on its way. Um, and they also showed another, uh, thing that they've been developing, which is a robotic cleaning system to vacuum the seats and clean the seats again, using a, a you know, modified industrial robot goes in 
cleans off the interior, you know, and when you've been carrying passengers around day around all day, things are going to get dirty and, you know, people don't want to ride in a dirty vehicle. So they've automated that process. And they also showed us um, uh, one of their origin prototypes that's been modified uh, with a wheelchair ramp. And, you know, one of the, the, the challenges, of course, you know, it, for today, you know, for paratransit services, um, for people in wheelchairs, typically, you know, there's, there's a human driver. And, you know, when the, the person in the chair pulls into the, the vehicle, uh, there's usually, you know, there's someone there to assist them with locking it down. So it doesn't, the chair doesn't move around while the vehicle's in motion. Um, on this origin, again, they took out one of the, the regular seats. You go roll up the ramp back into the, the seat. And then there's an automatic mechanism that clamps onto the wheels to hold the chair in place uh, for safety. So um, they've been looking at all these, in order to have a, a viable commercial service, you have all these other pieces of the puzzle that you actually have to get in place. It's not just building an automated driving system, but you have a whole slew of other things to support those vehicles. And they're trying to um, mechanize as many of those systems as they can in order to drive down the cost of the service uh, to make it accessible to more people. Yeah, it, it's starting to sound sort of like that Amazon grocery store where you you just walk in, you take the product and walk out, and and you don't have to interact with anyone. Um, yeah, kind of <laughs> like that. Well, yeah. and and one of the other things that you know that Cruz also showed us uh, is uh, uh, a locker module that can go into the Origin. So the the Origin and also the Zooks uh, Robo Taxi are both designed with carriage style seating. So everybody's facing the center of the vehicle. There's and there's no forward or forward or back, um, and they have sliding doors that open up. So um, the the locker module that goes into the Origin uh, is like the Amazon lockers that you can find in you know, in a, all kinds of locations. Uh, and so they can, if there's uh, lower demand for rides at certain times of the day, they can use it to you know, slide that locker module in, clamp it down, and then load it up with uh, deliveries. And it can go out and make deliveries and have the same kind of contactless delivery, you know, that uh, you just go up and scan the QR code on your phone screen. One of the doors opens up, you take your, take your package and close the door and uh, the, it goes on and does its thing. And uh, talking to the folks at Zooks, which is, of course, owned by Amazon now, um, you know, they that is, you know, they're, they're focusing on robo taxis first, but they do recognize that at some point, you know, they'll probably have a version of their vehicle that has lockers on it to do those sort of last mile deliveries. Um, and there's there's other companies working on similar uh, systems as well. So, yeah, it's it's there, as Oliver mentioned, you know, with, with trucking, you know, utilization, maximizing utilization is crucial to making a viable business. And so, you know, robo taxis are not going to have constant demand throughout the course of a day. Uh, but if you can use those vehicles, use those same vehicles for other uses like goods delivery, then you can get a lot more, uh, out of it and, and, uh, gen- you know, potentially, hopefully at some point actually reach profitability. Yeah, uh, I'd say that's a pretty key one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it kind of goes along with my last question about, you know, if uh, Cruise is able to deploy to a new city, you know, within nine months instead of what might have been nine years in the past, is that accelerating your predictions for how quickly uh, automated vehicles might roll out? I guess on the understanding that they're not profitable yet, of course. Yeah, somewhat. Uh, You know, one thing to keep in mind is that even the cities that the cruise is talking about expanding to now, you know, Phoenix, Austin, Texas, uh, they've also a couple of last year, I think announced a deal with Dubai to deploy their vehicles in Dubai. One consistent theme of all of this, these are all relatively warm weather locations, uh, where, you know, severe weather is relatively uncommon. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so, you know, even you know, even in San Francisco, uh, you know they don't really have winter weather. Uh, so uh, weather is still a challenge for all of these companies, and getting these vehicles to work in places where you have less consistent weather um, is still something that everybody's working on. So uh, I think you know being able to more quickly go into a new 
venue and get up and running is going to be important. And that will probably have an impact on the next update of our, um, of our forecast. If, you know, if we see that Cruz is able to do that successfully. Um, but, uh, and even you look at Waymo, who's been the, the leader in this space for a decade, uh, you know, they've been doing this in Chandler, Arizona for, you know, they, they started offering public, uh, ride hailing with Waymo one and Chandler, which is a suburb of Phoenix in 2019. Um, they've only just in the last month expanded that service into downtown Phoenix. Um, you know, and Cruz is still isn't telling us where in the Phoenix area they actually plan to operate or where in Austin they're going to be operating. Um, and, you know, even San Francisco, which is not that large of a city, they're only able to operate in about one third of the city right now. So uh, certainly, you know, being able to get up and running in a new city quickly is important, but we also have to rely on expanding to other environments. Oh, a quick question, Sam. Um, when you were being driven around in um, San Francisco, um, how did the other road users interact with you? In fact, did they, did they realize that um, you were not driving the car? Uh, yeah, I mean, some people looked over and saw, you know, saw the car and waved. Um, but I think, you know, in San Francisco in particular is kind of uh, an outlier, um, you know, because the people in San Francisco have been seeing these cars driving around for, you know, the better part of a decade from a variety of companies, you know, from Waymo, Cruise, Uber, uh, Zooks, and, and, and numerous other companies. Um, you know, and, and you can just go out and stand on any street corner in San Francisco any time of the day, and you won't have to wait more than about 10 minutes to see an automated vehicle drive by. Um, so I think, you know, the pe- people in San Francisco are getting fairly used to it at this point. But yeah, I mean, people will still do a double take, you know, when they when they see a car driving by with nobody in the driver's seat and somebody sitting in the back. Yeah. Do, do the other drivers try and take advantage of you, the fact that there's no human driver or? They didn't during my time in the vehicle, but I have heard from other people um, you know, and other companies that it does happen. Yeah. I mean, people will will do things like, you know, suddenly slam on the brakes, you know, or, you know, uh, do, you know, they'll do a variety of inappropriate things uh, to see how the vehicle responds. So, Sam, when you're talking about the expansion in the cities and and the limited use now, what is the the general consensus with these companies? Are they talking about, even as they expand to other cities, that the services will typically be geofenced or are they still really bullish and say like, you know, no, the, you know, we can definitely see, you know, covering an entire city area. It's still going to be geofenced for the foreseeable future, at least for probably, you know, the next five, probably through most of this decade, it, you know, it's going to be geofenced, you know, and those geofences will, will gradually move as they gain more experience and confidence in various locations um, and, and they get regulatory approvals, uh, those geofences will expand, but it's still going to be geofenced and it's going to be a while before, for example, you see the vehicles, you know, um, you know, robo taxis going out into suburban areas or rural areas. That's going to, that's going to take quite a long time. Uh, it's still going to be primarily in the urban centers for, for quite a while yet. All right. Uh, if nobody's got anything else, We'll wrap it up there and say thanks to everybody, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thanks, everyone.